This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 67, Mare Nostrum. On October 28, 1940, at 5.30 a.m. local time, Italy invaded Greece. For Mussolini, this was another part of his plan to fulfill his dream of Mare Nostrum, in Latin, Our Sea. The Mediterranean would once again become a Roman lake. The Italian dictator had, somewhere along the way, lost his fear and respect for the British, which led him to believe that a quick victory in Greece would put another nail in the coffin of British dominance in the Mediterranean. But Mussolini's excitement was for more than just fulfilling a dream since 1922, when he came to power. He was also excited at thrusting Italy back to the center of the world stage. Let the earth tremble in fear again at the sound of Italian boots, this time marching across the Aegean. Hitler wasn't the only great man in Europe. But this invasion was only the beginning. Greece was to serve a larger purpose. Once under Italian control, Greece would not only outflank Yugoslavia, but also check Britain's other ally, Turkey. What's more, the route from the Romanian oil fields to Italy would be that much more secure. And, as for the despised, once great British Empire, with Greece under Italian control, Alexandria and the Suez Canal were that much more exposed. Indeed, for the investment of temporarily upsetting his access partner and a few hundred Italian dead, the payoff for Italy would be huge. As Mussolini pictured his men marching through Greece, Emboldened by fascist ideology, that same vision viewed Greece as pathetically weak and all that was needed in modern warfare. It was a relatively poor, smaller country with about 50,000 square miles of territory, and much of that was made up of the hundreds of islands, of only which about 150 were inhabited. But even of the mainland area, rugged mountain ranges and steep and narrow valleys dominated. And Greece's lack of industrialization meant that these physical features had not been overcome 
by its inhabitants. Also, the population of the target country was of about 7 million, mostly peasants living off the land, with a tolerated dictator as their leader. Its economy was mostly agrarian, and its army was considered by numerous military observers as third-rate. Mussolini expected Greek pride to force Metexas, the tolerated dictator, to put up a token resistance and then bow before the inevitable, overwhelming Italian tidal wave. After all, at this time, Mussolini was still seen as a great man, doing larger-than-life things. He helped stop communism in Spain, guided his country through the Great Depression, defied the League of Nations, conquered Ethiopia and British Somaliland, and invaded Egypt. But Greek blood was up, and it had been Mussolini's doing. Back on August 15th of that same year, with no declaration of war and no current hostilities, the Italian submarine Delfino sank the pride of the Greek Royal Navy, the Ella, spelled H-E-L-L-E, the H is silent. But that was only the beginning. The crew of the Ella was on shore taking part in one of the most important feast days of the church, the repose of the Most Holy Mother of God. The shrine of Our Lady of Tinos, the island they were on, was violated, along with everything the Greek Orthodox faith held most dear. That's what they did literally, but the symbolic violation generated the anger. Greeks refer to themselves as Elin or Elis, and in their culture there is a code they live by called Philotimo. Like most aspects of a culture, it is complicated and not easy to pin down. But, in its most simplest form, Philotimo is an unwritten value system and sense of honor. To go against this code is to turn a Elin, a group of them, or an entire country of them, from kindness to a ruthless desire for revenge, in one stroke. In fact, even until recently, the law there understood when an Elin felt the need to strike out against another for the sake of honor. And in one stroke, the Italians generated a hatred by the Greeks that was vitriolic. Metexas had to hold back the press and his people from retaliating. And for once, since coming to power, the Prime Minister now had the support of his people. Ironically, Greece, coming up short compared to Italy, in relating to issues favorable in a modern war, was, in some ways, more prepared. Metexas had spent the last four years simultaneously trying to stay off Mussolini's radar while preparing his country for the war with Italy everyone knew was coming. Greece's resources were scarce, but Metexas' military experience and knowledge was vast. He did not have Spitfires or Panzers, so he focused on what he could. Logistics, morale, organization, and disinformation. On March 5, 1936, Metexas was made Minister of War by King George II during the latest political infighting, as many different parties vied for power in the Voli, or Parliament. King George II and Metexas had known each other for a long time. Metexas had tutored the young prince for two years in military history, cartography, and military tactics, 
From there, he only went on to shine further during the Balkan War of 1912-13. to After that, he studied military tactics in Germany, where he left with a heavy respect for those countrymen's abilities. But then he suffered his own political wilderness during World War I, when he thought Greece should side with the Central Powers and was therefore banished for the duration of the war. Ironically, the current king soon found himself banished, and it was Metexas who worked to bring the king back while in various offices throughout the second half of the 1920s and early 1930s. But in 1936, fate stepped in. Four key political leaders, all of them politically outranking Metexas, though not necessarily in talent or experience, died during the first five months of that year. Foul play was not suspected. Suddenly, literally, he was the only man standing for the position of prime minister. It was then that he demonstrated his political acumen. Though considered only a military leader, he had learned the rough and tumble ways of politics during his various appointments. As different parties tried out various coalitions to keep Metexas in check, none of them liked or trusted him, Metexas soon outmaneuvered them all by persuading the parliament to adjourn on April 30th, 1936, which left the king, but in the person of the prime minister, in total control. The new prime minister held out as long as he could before using his trump card, really his only card, martial law. But as a second strike was called for, Metexas declared a national emergency and gave himself dictatorial powers under martial law. The king, George II, his student from many years ago, agreed with him because he wanted what Metexas wanted, to keep the communists out and avoid civil war. The civil war in Spain, after all, was being closely watched. It didn't take long for his countrymen to figure out that Greece's new leader was not going to release his grip on power anytime soon. But honestly, after Lenin, Stalin, Franco, Mussolini, and Hitler, the world could not be expected to be in shock by these events. And like those before him, Metexas promised the masses peace and security, glory and plenty. He used emotion, avoided logic, and his message was carried by film and radio. Sound familiar? But if his opponents wanted specifics, he would give it to them. The August 4th regime, as his government was to become known as, had six key points. One, to end internal strife. Two, to curb the excesses of the press. Three, to ameliorate the conditions of the poor and the unemployed. Four, to promote a national unity glorifying the merits of king, nation, and faith, with Athens as its cultural hub. Five, to institute much-needed social, legal, economic, political, and military reforms. Six, to enlist the support of the nation's youth for what was promised to be the third Greek civilization. Just a note, the first was the classical, the second, the Byzantine. Even though Ionius Metexas had achieved his goal, it was not a time to sit back and enjoy his power. To the new prime minister, he needed the absolute authority and as much time as he could get to prepare his country for what was coming. 
And in doing so, of his six-point program, he would really only focus on one and a half items. He would institute military reform and utilize the help of the nation's youth. But Texas was readying Greece for war. Styling his government after Mussolini's, still seen as Europe's great politician, the August 4th regime banned all political parties. The press was severely restricted. The Texas argument was, are we not all Elene? How can we stand apart from each other with an Italian knife pointed at our collective heart? And like Mussolini and Hitler, the people were to some degree behind him at first. He was putting a stop to the infighting, and he had come to power legally. But no man is an island, even a dictator. Constantine Maniadakis, the deputy minister of public security, was absolutely loyal and performed his job efficiently. He suppressed political opposition and allowed Metexas to work in relative peace for the first two years of his reign. What's more, when war did come, there was no Axis Fifth Column or Communist Sixth Column. Greece would not suffer as had France or Spain. But by mid-1938, there were those in Greece ready to step forward and try to legally oust the dictator by going through the king. But the effort failed, as did another political maneuver, and Metexas used those attacks to make himself prime minister for life. With internal opposition held at bay, Metexas went to work. Greek foreign policy was all about recognizing realities. Friends were kept close, such as Turkey and Britain, but enemies were kept closer, as in Italy. Also, Greece's traditional enemy, Bulgaria, was interacted with on a high level. For all this, Britain was still cool to the pro-German Metexas. Not that his relationship with Germany fared well. Hitler quickly realized that Greece, with its economy dependent on its seagoing vessels, combined with its sea lanes being controlled by Britain, meant that Greece could never be brought into the Axis fold, peacefully. Besides, Mussolini, the other Axis partner, wanted control of Greece and its 605 steamships and 713 other sailing vessels. Metexas was forced to play a balancing game during the latter 1930s. Greece was tied to Germany economically, who bought most of Greece's agriculture, but Germany's ally threatened Greece's freedom. This type of balancing act only urged the Prime Minister to push for a more Greek independence in every way possible. So, he continued to push his policy of irrigation and reclamation, which allowed for massive growth in the growing of oats and maize. This type of improvement would have normally meant a great deal to the very people the Prime Minister was trying to win over, the young, but fate seemed to push Greece back for every step the Prime Minister made forward. Before war broke out in Europe, just over 10,000 refugees from the Ukraine and the Black Sea made their way to Greece. These people were running from Stalin's various programs that seemed only to have one ending. Still, Greece was getting stronger, according to a U.S. Army intelligence report in 1935 and again in 1936. Slowly, perhaps, but it was on the right course. Yet time was not on its side. The August 4th regime was able to minimize political turmoil within the army, 
as well as experiment with an end zone regiment, which was comprised of specially selected and trained young men, valued for their superior physical and mental abilities. By 1939, there were five regiments of these kilted infantry. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. During this same time, an effective air force was simply beyond Greek means. In the end, they bought 143 World War I-era planes from Poland. After that, there would be no reserves. And developing and maintaining radar was as impossible as buying hurricanes or spitfires. It was Greece's antiquated air force that would prove to be the country's undoing. So Matek says, focused on defense, not offense. And he knew that their defense, in whatever form and level of readiness he could get it to, would be tested by Italy. What's more, Albania, under Italian orders, or Bulgaria, might try something and the Prime Minister wasn't even sure his country's armed forces could stand up to them. He knew Greece would be bested by Italy with its modern army, navy, and air force. They knew this too, so they would come. It was only a matter of when. Having three potential invaders meant that any chance of surviving required reducing the number of invaders who could come at you at one time. So, in 1936, a line of fortifications was built along Greece's northern frontier, mostly facing Bulgaria. The roads and railroads behind this line of works were also improved. But this was not to be another Maginot line. Some forts were stronger than others, depending on the surrounding terrain. Some areas were easier to defend due to the physical features. The forts housed German guns built by Krupp, and other German equipment. The strongest part of the line was just over 120 miles long, starting at the Nestos River in northeastern Thrace, making its way to the Greco-Yugoslav-Bulgarian borders. It was called the Metexas Line. While it's true the lion's share of the military budget went to the army, the navy, under Rear Admiral Alexandros Sacolerio, did what he could with his. Communist elements were pushed out, and the day-to-day lives of the men were improved. Two newer destroyers were built, bringing their total to ten. Two 70-foot torpedo boats were also added. Other ships were either built or refitted and modernized. 
And by the time war broke out, Greece had 10 destroyers, 13 torpedo boats, 8 mine layers, 6 submarines, and a few other support craft. By mid-1939, Metaxas knew he was still very far away from having Greece prepared for a war that seemed to wall to be coming. In early and mid-1939, the Prime Minister received reports from the U.S., the British, and his own people that Greece's military had come a long way from where she started, but still had a longer way to go. But Metaxas was a realist. He continued making plans with what he had. But Greece's destiny was to be that of a pawn in a much larger game. On March 15, 1939, Hitler took the rest of Czechoslovakia without first telling Rome. That pushed Mussolini to finally take Albania, something he had been thinking about for almost a year. Besides, it was a necessary part of his re-establishing Mare Nostrum. The invasion started on April 7, 1939, and was over in five days. But it wasn't simply Italian might that got the job done. The Albanian military, after all, had been trained by Italy, and certain people in Albania were already in place, or paid by Italian coin, to undermine and confuse the political and military reaction when the invasion came. As that conflict came to a speedy conclusion, the Greeks even with their hatred of the Italians for their treatment of fellow Greek countrymen in the Dodagonese Islands, reacted fearfully. But on April 10th, three days into the invasion, Mussolini made it clear to London, and then to Athens, that Italy had no intention of invading Greece. Still, or maybe even because of this, Prime Minister Chamberlain offered in public a guarantee of support to Greece and Romania. Metexas, for his part, took Britain up on its offer. But none of this was going to help Albania or the royal family. King Zog and his queen, along with their four-day-old son, escaped to Greece. But the royal family was asked to leave in case it seemed that Athens was showing Albania any kind of support. Greece might now have a pledge from Britain and France, but those words were not as moving as those of the chief of the Italian Armed Forces General Staff, Marshal Pietro Bagdolio, when he said that all roads leading from Albania to Yugoslavia and Greece must be repaired by August of that year. The formidable Italian workers and engineers came over and got to work. Time was running out. Metaxas asked London for spitfires, considering their new understanding of support. But the Greeks were told to develop their air force more slowly. That way, they would avoid costly mistakes. Desperate, Metaxas did an about-face and requested aircraft from Germany. The planes were promised, but never delivered. What was the point? The Greek government then took a long, hard look at its military, and the results were most disheartening. Greek mobilization was too slow, and therefore, Greek forces would be chewed to pieces by Italian air power, as would their communication and transportation systems. The Greek side bordering Albania was hard to travel for land forces, which would slow deployment even more. Also, there were no fortifications along the Greco-Albania frontier. There wasn't time and money enough 
to build both defensive lines simultaneously. Next, there were currently no plans for countering a large-scale attack from the direction of Albania. And finally, Metexas believed the Greek people, along with their armed forces, would probably panic during invasion, and any coordinated response would be impossible as well as inadequate. Still, Metexas, with his aides and higher staff, took what they had and began deciding how best to use it. As for their slow mobilization, it was decided best to plan out and begin partial and secret mobilization now. Next, fortifications were started along the border with Albania, but 20 miles behind the border to avoid discovery. Then, misinformation was spread about Greek transportation routes and the location of military units, thus making initial Italian thrusts more uncertain. Also, the Greek government took an even more controlled approach to purchasing foodstuffs that would be needed if Greece was cut off from the rest of Europe. But then, the attack didn't come. Not right away, like it probably should have from Mussolini's point of view. The Italians would not cross the Albanian border for another 19 months, and the Greek government, supported enthusiastically by the Greek people, used that time well. Greetings, everyone, and I hope everyone had a pleasant and safe New Year's celebration, and I hope you have a great 2013. Um, before I let you go, I just wanted to thank some people who donated for the month of December. Sorry, I haven't done this in a while. Um, just a couple of things. When I made my book audible recommendations um, for D-Day, I can't believe I left out the Bedford Boys. Uh, check out Bedford Boys by Alex Kershaw. It's on Audible. It's a, a detailed story about the 21 men who died uh, that day from Bedford. It's a really incredible story. I have that. I just started listening to it. I can't believe I left that one out, so I'm terribly sorry. Um, I didn't really find anything pertinent on Audible as far as Greece, but again, every time I find a book I like that they don't have, I just shoot them a recommendation, and hopefully one day they'll listen to me. Oh, and if you haven't, uh, check out Laszlo Montgomery, the History of China podcast. He's doing a series on the history of uh, Hong Kong, and if you've read James Clavell like me and you love that, you will love his series. Uh, he did a really good job. I think he's up to seven episodes by now on the series. Anyway, he's done a really good job of covering how it got started and all the political uh, intrigue as far as the British were concerned and how they were trying to deal with the uh, the Chinese in the mainland. It's just a really interesting story. So check out that series. Um, I think you'll enjoy it a lot. And I hope you liked the previous episode with the pictures and going to the uh, D-Day Memorial. I've never done anything like that before. So I hope it turned out okay and I hope you liked it. There is a very substantial tank museum in southern Virginia, Danville, Danville, Virginia. I'll be checking out um, sometime in the next month or so, and I'll do another one of those. Uh, I'll take a lot of pictures and uh, put it together, so I hope you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy that as well. Okay, so for the people who uh, made my and my family's Christmas very nice, the people who donated for the month of December, and again, it just makes a huge difference around here. Um, so first, uh, Peter B. in Allen Laid, Australia. And Nigel C. in North Yorkshire, UK. Uh, Chris B. in Bellingham, Massachusetts, uh, near Boston. 
And yes, Chris, if I ever make it up that way, and I've always wanted to go to Boston, I will definitely look you up, and you and your friends can maybe buy me a couple dozen beers and, and talk my ear off about all things naval in the Pacific. That would that would be great. Um, Robert R. from Bourne, Texas. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Paul M. from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. Thank you, Paul. Um, Giles D. in Huddersfield, West Yorkshire, UK. Uh, thank you. Robert J. in Riga, Latvia. And thank you, Robert, for the email about having a happy new year. I certainly did. Um, Travis B. in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, U.S. And Seamus P. in Wicklow, Ireland. I hope I said that right. Um, Lawrence M. in Shelby Township, Michigan, U.S. Thank you. Um, Don C. in Yuba City, California. I hope I said that right. I have to ask Laszlo about that one. Uh, Darren A. in Elkhorn, Nebraska. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for the message at the end of your donation, even coming close to comparing me to the History of Rome podcast, but probably the best that's out there. Um, I just do the best I can. But yes, I love that one too. Um, Desmond S. from Singapore. Thank you very much. Andy P., who ordered all of the discs um, that I've been able to put together so far for a Christmas present for someone. So again, thank you very much. Uh, made the wife very happy, which, you know, should be everyone's goal. Uh, column M from Aberdeen city in the UK. Thank you. And lastly, Jonathan W who bought volume one, um, Bedfordshire in UK. So again, thank you everyone. Uh, a lot more books coming in. And again, the reason I started this whole podcast was to learn literally the entire story, uh, as much as one person can, uh, of World War II. And through your donations, I'm getting all these books. I've already had to go out and buy a third bookshelf. So again, thank you very much. I will get the next episode out as soon as I can. I have a surprise for you um, that I think I promised like seven episodes ago. Anyway, I will make all the announcements about that on the next um, on the next podcast because it'll be ready. So look forward to that, and I will see you as soon as I can. We will finally get Mussolini's troops into Greece, and we'll see what happens, even though I think you all have a pretty good idea. So that will be coming out soon, and as usual... Take care, everyone. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.